There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning and welcome to the Michael Reed Show with Alan Cantwell. On the programme this morning, there's been mixed reaction to the news that plans to reform the senior cycle will be accelerated, but without the teacher-based assessment. Teachers' unions welcome the news. Opposition politicians strongly criticise the government and Education Minister Norma Foley following the announcement. The Irish Property Owners Association unveiled its pre-budget 2024 submission aimed at addressing the critical housing emergency which continues to deteriorate nationwide. Security at Leinster House is to be kept under review in the face of aggressive protests towards TDs and senators. And also in the programme, the Health Minister still has many questions to answer over the latest reports from the spinal surgery scandal at Temple Street Hospital in Dublin. First this morning, there's been mixed reaction to the news that plans to reform the Leaving Cert will be accelerated, but without the teacher-based assessment. Teachers' unions welcome the news. Opposition politicians strongly criticise the government and the Education Minister, Norma Foley. Labour's Aon O'Reardon says he thinks it's a massively missed opportunity. Joining us this morning is ASTI President Geraldine O'Brien. Geraldine, thank you for taking our call this morning. Can I first ask you, perhaps, just to comment on what Aon O'Reardon had to say when he says it's a massively missed opportunity. Do you agree? Good morning, Alan, and thank you for having me. Well, that's what opposition do, Alan. Opposition generally oppose everything uh, a city minister or the Taoiseach of the day or if it's a rotating Taoiseach, the Tánste, um, that's what opposition do. The yeah, we, we get that. But Geraldine, you know, he made a relevant point, And I mean, I'd agree with him in this. I mean, it's been 40 years since I sat the Leaving Cert and nothing has really changed. Well, now, Alan, while um, I, I don't doubt your memory, <laughs> things have changed, Alan. Th- things certainly have changed. For instance, Alan, when you, and indeed I, uh, did my leaving cert, um, apart from an oral, uh, it was an entirely written paper, a terminal paper in June. Today, um, students have orals, orals, and project work. In, say, take the example of uh, home economics. 20% project is submitted at the autumn, the, generally around the Halloween break of the year prior to the doing the, the, the written exam. In other words, in the, in the autumn of uh, year two of Leave and Search. 
um, and that's weighted at 20%. Mm. So then students are doing a written paper for uh, 80%. In construction studies, they do two things. There's a written paper, if you're taking it at a higher level, that's worth and weighted at 50%. And they do a practical exam, right? And they do create a project, right? An, an artefact of some type. And that's worth 50%. So they're only fighting for um, 50% in the terminal exam. OK, well, well, let's look at what was announced yesterday. There's going to be no um, correction in terms of assessments by teachers anymore. And the minister says this was due to AI issues. I presume she's talking about chat GTP there. But in reality, it was nothing more than a flag of convenience on the part of the minister to be able to walk away from the pressure that the unions put her under and she capitulated to the unions because it suits you. You don't have to correct the papers. That's now going to be shifted off to somebody else. And it means less work for the teachers. That's the reality of it. No, no, Alan, it is not the reality of it. The assessment aspect of it that you illustrated there is uh, absolutely correct. However, when there's project work involved, the work for the teacher increases eight, tenfold because they give a number of drafts to um, the, the students complete a number of drafts and the teacher corrects each one and gives feedback, formative feedback on it, and then they submit a final draft, whether that's an artefact or whether that is a, a project of some type. Now, so to say that it's less work for the teachers, it's enormously more OK, work. well then, what is the problem just bringing it to the next step and allowing the teacher then to make an assessment of it? Now, I understand w- what your arguments are around the relationship between the student, the teacher and the pressure they may come under from the parents. But the reality is we're all professionals here. Sometimes we have to look at things dispassionately, leave our relationships aside and look at it professionally. So what is wrong with just adopting that particular principle? But Alan... You cannot leave the relationship aspect aside. Fundamentally, the relationship between student and teacher would change. Teachers have always been advocates for their students. Then, if it were a teacher-based assessment, they would become their judge and jury. And the consequences of that, look at what happened in the uh, predicted grades and the accredited grades. Teachers gave the students bumped up grades. That for three years now, the SEC are trying to realign. realign. So, sorry, I just want to... I'm sorry for cutting across the journey. So are you telling me then that the teachers did not fulfil their professional obligations when it came to giving up what you call bumped up grades? Were no, they the wrong I'm, grades? No, no, I'm not saying that. I am not saying that. You're, you're, you're misquoting me. The, no, no, I'm, um, I'm only repeating back to you what you said to me and I just need clarification on that point. Well, you, I'm not telling you any secret. You've read it in the media. You've read it in the newspapers that the grades were higher than when the students did the, uh, the exam in June. What are, the, what are the colleges doing for the last three years? The colleges are um, reporting that a huge number of students are dropping out because they're not fit for their course. Right. Now, and if you, if you want me to expand on that, uh, I don't know where you live, Alan, uh, but I certainly live in a rural area, and I would not like to be grading the uh, 
students of my next door neighbour. I just would not. Why? Have you come across instances where uh, teachers have experienced hostility from students or parents? Alan, teachers have. And teachers travel distances to do their shopping in another town, in another supermarket, because parents were not happy with the grade awarded to their student, the grade accredited to their student. Remember, if you had a class of 30, somebody had to be first and somebody had to be last. That is the reality. That was the reality. Do we want to go back there? No, we don't. The work is put in an envelope. It's not done on the day of in June. It's put in an envelope. It's sent to the SEC. It's marked externally. It's marked fairly. It's a transparent system. And students have the option to review their papers after the exam. It's a high-stakes exam. It's well-regarded nationally and internationally. Okay, well, let me just ask you, on the basis of what has happened yesterday, um, there will be an assessment still, but it won't be graded by the teachers. How will it be graded? Now, the Minister hasn't given the fine detail, but I'm assuming that it will be um, put in an envelope with with the, um, the, the written exam on the day in June. If it's Irish with Irish, if it's English with English, if it's uh, home economics with well, home and what economics does it go to the state exams and commission? Then it goes to the state exams commission to be externally assessed. So, and I, I, furthermore, I, there's a standard. See, when it goes to the SEC, there's a standardisation process. So the grades are standardised because. The examiners attend a marking conference for the SEC and the grades are standardised for the entire country. Let me ask you then, on the basis of, again, what the Minister um, outlined yesterday, where does that leave the, I suppose, the the rethinking around um, senior cycle reform and the actual timelines and that, and does it throw things into disarray for the likes of the NCCA? Are we still on course to meet the, the timelines as outlined? Well, see, the, uh, the Minister had um, initially planned to introduce um, pilot schools um, in the uh, 2025. 25. Uh, Is that still going year? ahead? Uh, but no, it's it's not. The the pilot would only be in a limited number of schools, Alice. Whereas n- now, uh, because there isn't teacher assessment, they're um, skipping, if you like, the, the pilot phase, and they're going straight into the rollout of the subjects for the cohort starting in 2025, with the exception of the two new subjects. Right. That is climate action and sustainable development, drama, film and theatre studies. They will be only in the pilot schools initially. Okay. Every new subject that's introduced, like uh, computer science, which I um, was a member of the development group myself in the recent past, that was introduced in a number of pilot schools before it was ruled out before it was rolled out to all schools. Let me just ask you finally, Geraldine, and this was in relation to an initiative that the Minister spoke about some time around, I think it was English Paper 1 and 2, where there'd be a move towards doing one paper end of fifth year and then the final paper 
in sixth year. Is that gone by the wayside? Well, the, the, that um, went by the wayside um, in the last uh, school, school year because of the fact that uh, writing, comprehension, reading, understanding, all those skills develop in tandem. So the skills of the student would, be, would not be honed, would not be fine-tuned at the end of year one as much as they would be at the end of year two. Okay, so what then, I know it's probably not a question for you, but from your perspective, what has been, what kite has been flown by the Minister that has actually landed in terms of changes that were to be implemented for senior cycle reform? Because it strikes me we've, you know, come up with great well, initiatives and ideas, but nothing has been brought across the line. The, the subjects that have um, cur- that currently have uh, second components will um, ha- still have the second components, but the subjects that don't have second components, right, the project or whatever the, the component will be, uh, they will be introduced. So there will be a component, a second component for biology, physics, chemistry, business, those subjects as she has outlined yesterday. At what point, way- though, at what point are they going the to be... The weighting may be um, greater than it currently is in existing subjects. Like um, construction studies would be unusual in that it's, it's one that has a 50 weighting of a practical and uh, a written. Whereas, say, home economics is 80-20, politics and society is 80-20. So the weighting for the project may be greater. Now, I don't know. That's me looking into a crystal ball because the minister hasn't, um, hasn't given what she uh, wants to introduce for the weightings for those subjects. OK, Geraldine, we must leave it there. Geraldine O'Brien, President of the ASTI, joining us this morning. Thank you for that. And I want to stay with that, but uh, albeit in a different context around uh, AI and ChatGTP and leading university figures from across Europe will be meeting in Dublin next week to discuss the opportunities of, I suppose, digital transformation and its impact on almost everything in higher education. So is AI such a threat that the Minister pointed to as the reason to change course when it comes to senior cycle reform and how is it being abused in the education system or for that matter is it? Well joining us this morning is Adrian Weckler, journalist for Media House Ireland covering independent.ie, the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent and it's fair to say one of the leading tech experts in the country. Adrian thanks for taking our call let's just talk a little bit about AI when it comes to education. I suppose we probably have to um, focus on ChatGTP. First of all talk to us about what it is and what impact it can have on education and what I suppose oversight is in place to ensure that nobody's cheating the system with ChatGTP. Yeah, so ChatGPT is mainly a problem when students do their homework for essays, for example. You can just ask it to, you know, write you an essay on pretty much any subject and it will do a competent job. As for the tools that are in place or the oversight, there aren't really any. Teachers are struggling with uh, being able to detect it and that's one of the problems at the moment. So just going back to this, and I think it's important for the listeners who are not familiar with this to understand how it works. And it is just it's it's phenomenal in terms of its capabilities. And I'll give an example of before um, when the whole issue of ChatGTP came up, I decided to sit down and you punch in, please write me a thousand words in relation to the Northern Ireland peace agreement. And within a matter of seconds, you get your thousand words 
And if you read back over it, you say, yeah, this will fly. This is pretty much on the mark in terms of what it has to say and the timelines and dates and significant um, processes that went under, went, uh, were underway uh, through the course of it. So it is a major issue to deal with. But why in Ireland have we not recognised and dealt with it when in other countries they have? And I talk about, for example, in Holland, the Dutch experience there in the university is they have put in place measures, oversight measures, albeit some draconian, but they've managed to be able to detect the use yep. of ChatGTP. Why are we behind the curve? I mean, to be honest, I can give you what is an official answer and I give you what I think. So the official answer is that, you know, this is a new phenomenon, it's new technology, and we haven't yet got up to speed on it. For systems like you know AI detection tools like Turnitin or GPT Zero, my honest opinion is that um, teachers don't like the idea of being made responsible for this. They are traditionally resistant to to new technologies in general. That's not a criticism of them. That's just the way that the culture of that job um, is at the moment. That's that's why I think uh, that has happened. What about the issue of copyright around ChatGTP? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big problem. So if I write something Irish independent and then that turns up sort of mangled or rewritten in an answer to something else, that's a bit of an issue. Um, It's very difficult, though, because ChatGPT is very clever in the way that it rewrites things. It doesn't actually um, it doesn't actually copy verbatim. So um, it's a kind of a very, very strange uh, situation that we find ourselves in as journalists. And how do you think the media landscape is going to change with AI from your own perspective? Are things going to be easier or more difficult? Because one would presume that it has a place, but it has to be very tightly monitored. Yeah, I I am more optimistic and less um, fearful of AI than a lot of kind of commentators you'll talk to, partially because it really is just a piece of technology like Google or the internet or email. It's kind of there and it's out of the bag. Now, if you think of AI, we've been talking about ChatGPT. Let's stay with ChatGPT. Think about ChatGPT in the student context as like a book of case studies. So if you give a student an essay, yes, it's possible, like you said, to go and ask it to do a 1,000-word essay. But I think what's more likely is that students will use it they might ask to write that 1,000-word essay, but they'll use that as a guide or a structure of what, how an essay should be written. Maybe they don't get that at school. Maybe they do, but maybe they don't. If they don't have to copy it wholesale. This is the approach that university is taking. Um, you know, it's a culture of open book exams. So it's, it's a more, it's a sort of a broader idea of, of education than this idea that all students are capable of is, is, you know, is cheating or just copying uh, all colleges uh, and all teachers are, are, are able to do is, uh, you, know, it, you know, they're helpless at, at detecting this stuff. I just don't believe that. So what are you saying? It's, you know, an advanced Wikipedia where we use it as a base because we all need a base mm-hmm. to work from, but don't use it as verbatim or as the final word and things. I mean, yeah. Use it as a springboard to go and research yourself. I think that is exactly the way it is being used. Now, there are some notable exceptions to that. There was a couple, been a couple of high-profile cases in the States. There was one where 
a lawyer was caught red-handed using ChatGPT to come up with a defence in a trial, which is just outrageous. <laughs> um, but generally speaking, the the um, the the examples that that most that, that crop up most in public life are exactly along the lines that we've discussed. It's being used as a guide, as an aid, as a tool. Same as Google. If you remember the hysteria that was yeah. there first when Google came out. Um, I, I, you know, it's it's kind of the same thing. Looking at uh, ChatGTP AI, it's um, you could pretty much say it's very much at the embryonic stages. Where will it all end, and how rapidly will it accelerate to get to a point where it just takes us into places where where we've never even imagined we could go? Well. There are a couple of ways of thinking about it. One, you could go back to your your science fiction textbooks, your your Arthur C. Clarke's and all of those, and they, uh, you know, it's not an unreasonable picture that they paint of what's going to happen with AI. There's so much money. It is by far the biggest biggest recipient of tech investment and venture capital investment at the moment, which means that that's what most of the brains are going to be focusing on over the next few years. So it is likely... Or at least possible, but probably likely that you're going to start seeing AI in more complex machines, more advanced machines. At the moment, it's things like ChatGPT, but then it's going to be incorporated into things like your web browser, your email. And it's a pretty short hop from there until it's incorporated into hardware, machines, robots. So I know it sort of always comes back to this idea of the robots are going to get smart and rise up and kill us or, you know, take all of our jobs. And I'm not saying that will happen, but it's it is very likely that this generation of AI will get more advanced and you'll start to see it incorporated into, let's call them semi-intelligent machines. They're not actually intelligent, they're not sentient. Semi-intelligent machines which will help with work, help with education, help around the house. I mean, the, the joke, the, the idea I always use when people say that they're afraid of, you know, you know intelligent machines in the, in the house, that's fine, but wait till it can do your ironing. You know, and, and, and then you'll be delighted. Here's the other problem, Adrian. It will take great intellect and great minds to make those advances in collaboration with the technology that's there. But also there'll be the converse of that, where the minds of the majority will become redundant because there will be machines and intelligence to do the things Ooh, that we know. did. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't. So so that's an interesting one. That's a, I would regard that as a little bit of a trope and <laughs> respectfully. And the reason I say that is. If you look at for the last 30 years, every time there's a new technology that comes in, there's just very, very often a chorus worrying and sometimes shrieking, but usually just worrying that, oh, this is going to be the end, isn't it? Now we're, we're all going to be redundant. You know, what, what, you know, what hope can there be if the, the automatic scrubbing machine replaces the workers who used to do the scrubbing? Like time and time again, what we've seen really is that... Um, we end up incorporating it into our daily lives. Like we end up actually accommodating it, and the jobs that we do just change. Sure, but they usually change for the better. There's usually a lot less kind of uh, repetitive, boring work. Um, we usually find a way to make make it help us rather than become our overlords. 
OK, we leave it there, Adrian uh, Weckler, journalist for Media House. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. The Irish Properties Owners Association unveiled its pre-budget 2024 submission aimed at addressing the critical housing emergency which continues to deteriorate nationwide. In tandem with its 2,000 membership, the organisation has developed a targeted set of recommendations that focus on promoting a more favourable tax and regulatory environment for property owners. Well, joining us this morning is Mary Conway, Chair of the Irish Property Owners Association. Mary, thanks for taking our call this morning. Um, I'll just very quickly outline what you're looking for. 25% rate cut on tax on residential rental income, an extension of capital gains tax relief to property owners and a reduction in capital acquisition tax. That's not going to happen. You know that when you consider that nothing happened last year and what you're going to be getting this year, for to believe the Minister, are merely crumbs off the table. Um, Thanks, Alan. Yes, um, you have summarised it very nicely there. We have just gone with the three proposals that we made last year. Um, Since this time last year, mortgage interest rates have gone through the roof. Uh, We knew last year that our um, members were struggling uh, to stay afloat financially and many of them were leaving. And the reason we were leaving was over-taxation and over-regulation. And um, that has got worse and the numbers of landlords Leaving the market has continued to increase over the last few years. So something needs to be done to keep landlords in the market and to attract new investment in because, um, you know, at this point, private property owners are doing the job of government. Um, and I know people would say, oh, yeah, but they're very well paid for it with half supports or whatever. But if the government had built um, more social housing over the last few years, it would have freed up housing for other people uh, for example, I am in my private capacity, I'm an estate agent and I have had calls all week from about 50 uh, builders who are looking for accommodation in the Dublin area. Um, and these are guys who want to, to build infrastructure projects, okay. build houses, but there's nowhere for them to live. Well, well, let's deal with the elephant in the room and that is the level of rent that is being um, accrued by landlords. Rack rents is how people before profit describe it. We're listening to the poor mouth of the landlords and yet quarter after quarter rent is increasing, particularly in Dublin, to levels which are at historic rates that we have not seen before. So spare us the, the, the tears, to be honest with you. OK, well, let's go back to yesterday and the ESRI report that came out. Um, the ESRI report worked off the RTB data and it shows that... Um, Existing tenants pay 15.2% less than, net, uh, than new tenants. And in some parts of the country, that's up to 39%. We know that our landlords are in a rent pressure zone. They're stuck at 2%. So they're not increasing the rent. So where are the high rents coming from? And for most parts, it's from the institutional landlords who can come in with new tenancies and charge what they want. And then they're not paying tax in this jurisdiction. So what we're asking is for equitable treatment with um, institutional investors instead of us paying anything up to 55% and then paying nothing, that every landlord, whether they're institutional or a private landlord, pays 25% across the board. Let me just ask... have a level playing field. Let me just ask you finally, Mary, in reality, what do you expect to get from the government? Because to get something, you've got to give something. Well, we have said, and, and you've said it yourself there about the capital gains retention relief, we're saying if there's an incentive to keep landlords in the market, that if they uh, dispose of their property after seven years, that um, 
they would pay their they would pay no capital gains tax then. That's very cost neutral for the government at this point, and it will keep landlords in the market for some time. Mary Conway, Irish Property Owners Association Chair, thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. A key public meeting on the issue of crime and antisocial behaviour is to take place on Monday 25th at 8 o'clock in the Newgrange Hotel in Navan. The meeting is being organised by the Safer Meath campaign and by Pather Tobin. Joining us this morning is Pather Tobin, a two leader and TD for Meath West and member of the regional group. Pather, thanks for joining us this morning. You know, I think um, people forget that there is life outside Dublin and it was only since the... I suppose the incident of that horrific assault in Talbot Street in Dublin that this issue came to the fore, but in reality it's happening all over the country, is it not? Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Unfortunately, I, I often say that if it's not uh, snowing on, in Donnybrook, uh, RTE doesn't necessarily cover uh, the fact that there's snow anywhere in the country. So we do have a very Dublin-centric media when it comes to uh, these things. But you're right, the, the level of crime and antisocial behaviour throughout the rest of the state is incredible and you know in counties like Meath um, you know I'm hearing back from people to say that you know children are getting um, you know um, attacked on the way home from school they're getting mugged and their, their phones are being taken off them that certain laneway, laneways off the main street are um, you know no-go areas because of uh, people drinking and taking drugs um, the shops and restaurants are closing area early in some places because of the fact that there is uh, so much antisocial behaviour uh, happening uh, at the moment. And we saw that you know, horrendous attack on two builders on the main street and Trimgate Street in Navan there last week. Uh, it was astonishing. I saw it. I, I just could not believe that it escalated into what it did in the middle of the day when two individuals were carrying out their day's work and all of a sudden they were assaulted. And, and this is the thing. So the, years ago, people were afraid sometimes going into towns and villages at night time, maybe after 11 o'clock at night. But increasingly in our towns and villages, you know, people are uncomfortable on the main streets, in the squares, in the middle of the day. And, you know, we have such a level of, of, of drug problems happening in towns and villages uh, where people are coming in on buses. They're buying the drugs. They're going down laneways or into parks and taking the drugs. And, you know, these are the public spaces in which we should be all enjoying you know and and now they're becoming no-go uh, areas uh, for people and and to have that level of assault happening on Trimgate Street you know is in the middle of the day is incredible but it's not unusual because you know we we have an office on Market Square in Navan and you know we're seeing things kicking off now and again uh, in the middle of the day uh, as well and that's not to say that Navan is not a good town or Trim is not a good town or Kells are not a good they're not good towns they are but there are like many, many towns across the country now uh, where there is an underlying undercurrent of, you know, fear and, you know, uh, danger. Uh, and that needs to stop. And, OK, look, you know, Pather, no matter what way you dress it up, we're living in a lawless society where there's disregard for law, there's disregard for Gardaí. There is a cohort out there that just do not care. And the only way to do this is to come down hard, the short, sharp shock. There's a, num- there's a number of solutions to it, and, and you're right, in terms of Garda resources is one of the first issues. So Ireland has one of the lowest number of police per capita in the whole of the European Union. For every year that uh, Helen McEntee has been Minister for Justice, there has been a fall in the number of Garda, even though the population has been going up. Every year now, hundreds of Garda are being attacked. 
Um, well, this is my point. Why would you want to become a Garda in this jurisdiction, considering what you have to deal with? And there seems to be no backup when it comes to the the Minister for Justice in order to be changing legislation and looking at the revolving door system. Nothing changes. OK, so there's a couple of points you, you can make here. First of all, and I do want to make this point, Meads has the lowest number of Garda in the whole country per capita by a long shot. We are way out of sync in terms of low numbers of Gardaí. So, you know, I would hear, for example, that in Navan on a given Saturday night, there could be only four Gardaí uh, in, you know, on duty. Um, even though, you know, outside of nightclubs and pubs, there's hundreds of people half cut, you know, in, involved in, you know, noise and sometimes fights. Um, you know, I know from the Trim area, from Enfields over to Clannard, up to Athboy, a big area on a Sunday, there might be only five Gardaí uh, on duty. So we know that the first thing you want to do is to protect Gardaí, and to do that, you need to make sure that there's a proper number of Gardaí um, that are employed, that are on duty. So, you know, the big question here is, you know, that the Minister for Justice is not employing the Gardaí at source. We know that uh, recruitment at Templemore has collapsed in the last couple of years. We need to employ far more Gardaí so that they have the backup necessary to do their job. Secondly, we, we, we need to make sure that there's a penalty for these types of actions, that there isn't a revolving door situation, that, you know, if a person is involved in two or three or four convictions, you know, after a while there is a, a custodial sentence in, in place for them. Even attacking a Garda at the moment doesn't involve a custodial sentence. And we in AIM2 have actually created a bill to say if you attack a Garda and you injure a Garda, you will see jail time. There's, there's no doubt about it, because Gardaí need to know that they're not going to be rammed on the street or attacked on the street to, uh, in going about their business. OK, Pader, I'm, I'm sorry to cut across it, but we, we've run out of time on it. But Monday 25th at 8 in the New Grange Hotel is the place to go to have that uh, particular... You can have your own input into it and tell your own stories in on that uh, day at that meeting. Pader Tobin, we leave it there. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Don't forget you can call us 086 1800 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Minister for State at the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Neil Richmond, met with the retail forum which he chairs. The forum was established to discuss issues relating to the sector. And for the past three meetings, the Minister requested that the issue of grocery price inflation be discussed and be very much at top of the agenda. And joining us this morning is Minister of State, Neil Richmond. Minister, thank you for joining us this morning. We'll come to the form in a moment, but I just want to ask you perhaps for your views on what happened outside um, the Doyle yesterday evening and the protests and how they deteriorated into, I suppose, mob rule. Yeah, it was a very uh, frightening uh, set of events, Alan, I'll be honest. This was a very small protest, which was maybe about 200 people, but, but certainly one of the nastiest protests I've seen outside Leinster House in a long time. You know, railing against so many different issues, uh, anti-immigration, anti-gay uh, rights, anti-trans rights, you know, all the conspiracy theories going back to the COVID days. And to see them jostling and abusing colleagues like Michael Healy Ray and Donna Colleary was one thing that was really inappropriate. But the presence of literal um, effigies of politicians being hung, you know, these are a horrible element. Um, they're not protesting. Everyone has the right to protest. Everyone has the right to assembly. But when they're basically stopping people from forming their democratic duties. And, you know, if the Guardi weren't there and the Guardi hadn't put up the barriers, Lord knows what would happen. Do you think we should react in a manner such as increasing security around the entrance there? Or does that just play into their agenda that they've made a point and we've made you do this? 
Alan, so the last uh, eight months, I have to walk from my office in Kildare Street across Kildare Street into Leinster House every day. And every day I have a camera phone stuck in my face uh, with people calling me all manner of names and accusing me of protecting paedophiles and all other things. There has to be more security around our national parliament. I travel Europe the whole time. We have much lower security in terms of guard or presence than others. And these people are there to disrupt. They're there to intimidate not just politicians, but the media, the staff, the civil servants that work in Leinster House, and anyone who's there to protest about another issue. You know, there was two other protests planned for yesterday, and those people couldn't have their voices heard because of the nature of this supposed protest of a real nasty fringe element. Is it your view that this is further evidence that we're witnessing a rise of the right in this country? Absolutely, and it stems from the from the COVID-19 period. These people found each other online. They're propagating really nasty, false conspiracy theories. And I think that the root of the problem goes back to a lack of moderation by the tech companies online. And what we need to do is continue to resource the Gardaí because, sadly, you know, I've seen much bigger protests outside the Dáil. I've seen... Ba- really tough protests. I've been working there as a staffer and as an elected official since 2007, but certainly the tone of the protest, um, the sheer hatred and um, the sort of slogans that were being used yesterday and the accusations were not like anything I've seen before. And it's, it goes beyond the far right to that sort of conspiracy element that we see in the UK and the US and indeed in continental Europe that aren't based in reality. And uh, I fear that it's one thing that outside Leinster House yesterday They'll be outside a direct provision centre or a homeless shelter. They'll be storming libraries this weekend as well. Okay, let's get to the retail forum. Another meeting with them. Um, There's concerns amongst particularly consumers that this is seen nothing more as a talking shop. And I say that in the context of the individual who goes to the supermarket on a weekly basis is coming out every single time saying the same thing. Prices are not going down. We're paying more for the staples every single week. They're not seeing it in their pockets, Minister. Well, what we have seen is when we first put grocery prices as on the top of the agenda a couple of months ago, grocery inflation was running at 16.9%. That's down this week to 11.5%. But whilst there's still inflation, it's coming down. But where we are seeing demonstrable impact and what the appeal I had made to retailers at the very start was where they can make savings to do it uh, and to show that we have. And we have seen savings, Alan. And what people are doing is they're moving to the own own brand lines. This is where the large retailers can make the real difference. And we've seen every single retailer since we first brought this issue up have reduced prices on just under a thousand staple items. These are things that you can't do without. This is the the milk, the bread, the breakfast cereal, uh, the nappies. Um, it's not just food, the, the the toothpaste, all that. And we have seen price cuts, and we've seen people move. Sixty more, sixty percent more people are using uh, own brand goods. And the message we got from the retail forum yesterday is that they can't control global inflation, global um, primary source prices going up. But what we can see an impact is on the own brand range. And where people are switching to the own brand range, they will see savings and they are seeing their grocery bills be lower than they were four months ago. So how effective do you feel this forum is, considering, number one, you can't compel anybody to reduce their prices because they're working you know, uh, within parameters which are completely outside of their control and they have to buy at a certain price and sell at a certain price. So in reality, all it is, is a talking shop. No, it's far more than that, Alan. It's a real ability to discuss and engage with the sector for us to hear their concerns 
and us to make the point quite clearly that we believe that grocery prices were too high. And that's why we've seen them come down. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We've seen them come down with every single retailer on hundreds of items to clear out the staple goods. The alternative is to use the legislative tools to put in price caps. They don't work. Every European country, uh, Hungary, Croatia... Spain for a brief time that entertained this has seen it be a disaster. They've seen the selection of goods go down. They've seen um, grocery shops close. Rather, what we want to do, and people can dismiss the form all they want, but we are getting results. We want to engage clearly with retailers and ask them to respond. And they have responded, more importantly. They have looked at their operating model and they said, look, we can make savings on the own brand range and in terms of the promotions that are there. Anyone who goes into any of the major retailers, any of the major supermarkets that have switched to own brand will see their weekly shop is cheaper now than it was uh, four months ago. Own brands aside, um, at what point do you think that the consumer will be able to feel it in their pocket that they are making the savings? I know you're saying that they're making savings on the own brand, but will we ever get back to the point where we were pre the cost of living crisis that we will be paying what we consider to be reasonable prices for the goods in the supermarket? Well, I think as inflation starts to to ease off and we're starting to see that quite dramatically, people will start to see this steady at a rate that is comparable to the income that they're bringing. Realistically, are the prices going to be the exact same as they were in 2019? Just like energy, that's not a realistic. But as we see salaries go up and as we see various other government measures, we'll see that balance out. It probably peaked in terms of people feeling the pinch of grocery prices about three months ago. It's still too expensive. It has come down considerably. It will come down more and indeed incomes will rise to meet that as well. So I certainly think over the next six months, Alan, that we'll start to see this even out a lot better. But there has been stark and marked improvements over the last few months, but of course there needs and will be much more. What was your ask of the um, retail sector when you met them? My very first ask um, three months ago is where income costs would come down, that uh, prices at the checkout will come down without uh, neglecting the prices paid to our producers, our farmers. But crucially, 
I made the point quite clearly that prices were too high a number of months ago. They have come down. The ask again yesterday is for the retailers to continue to work to bring down the prices on staple goods. This is it, the key staple goods that people can't do without. We'll see those savings on the own brand range. And in turn, the retailers made it quite clear to government that where they have concerns and where they require support, be it in terms of energy costs, be it in terms of the cost of living, that we need to react in the upcoming budget and with our legislative agenda. And I undertook that because it's not just about one entity and about this. It's not just about the farmer, the food company, the retailer, the government. It's about a collective. And that's why we have this forum, Alan, to work through the issues together and to work to a solution that ultimately will mean that the prices at the checkout um, tomorrow morning for people doing the weekly shop will be cheaper than they were three months ago, particularly if they've moved to own brand goods and that equally that they will continue to move to a far more uh, affordable price setting over the next couple of months. Now, I know it does not come under your purview, but the budget is coming up. The Minister for Finance is, I suppose, dotting the I's and crossing the T's and probably has a little bit more horse trading to do with the various departments. But is there an expectation, as I think we're being led to believe, that there will be some sort of sucker, as it were, for the individual in that budget, that we will get something that will make life a little bit easier for us in terms of this cost of living crisis? Yeah, and I think there really needs to be, Alan. We saw last year, in last year's budget, over €12 billion worth of measures in terms of one-off measures and in terms of through-the-year cuts. And what we want to see this year and what we're working with our coalition parties is to develop uh, a budget that puts a little bit of money back into people's pockets in terms of a tax package, in terms of reducing and stretching the bonds, but equally in terms of a welfare package to ensure that our pensioners, our carers and those with disabilities are able to meet what are ever-rising costs. And parallel to that, we will do the large-scale capital investment that will allow us to continue to the fact that we have the fastest-growing economy in the EU, effective full employment, and we're creating new opportunities for everyone. Everyone, Alan, who wants a job can have one tomorrow morning in the Ireland today. It wasn't like that 10 years ago. That will frame the entire budget to make sure that we can keep the economic growth to make life that little bit easier for people who we know are facing a very real cost of living crisis. Now, you do accept that there are red flags being raised by various think tanks around the economics of what will happen in the budget. If we put too much money into the economy, we could overheat things. We could further spike inflation when, as you say, and we've seen evidence of it, that it is coming down. So it's a delicate balance. Yeah, it's a really delicate balance and it'll be very easy for us to take all the recommendations from all the lobby groups, all the opposition parties and put them into place, but it would absolutely blow up the economy. Some of the recommendations from the opposition, if you total them all up, we'd blow the, the, the surplus that took a long time to develop in one go and blow up the economy at the same time. This is about being prudent and responsible and what we've seen consistently over the last 12 years with Fine Gael in government is we've rebuilt an economy that was on its knees after the financial crash into an economy that is the envy of not just Europe but the world, but it is in a position to really make genuine inroads into the daily challenges that our people are facing in terms of health, housing and the cost of living. It's a delicate balance, but I have absolute confidence in Pascal Donahue and Michael McGrath to make sure when they stand up in three weeks' time that they deliver a realistic budget that will make a genuine difference to the lives of everyone in Ireland. Just before I let you go, Minister, there's an expectation that we might be facing down the barrel of a general election sooner rather than later. Do you think we'll cut and run, the government will, after the budget? 
No, I think realistically, and this is me speaking as an individual, I think we'll be looking more towards March 2025, or at least after the local and European elections. A general election is a long time away. We have a lot more houses to build. We have a lot more measures we want to take. And I don't think there's an appetite for general election, either publicly or indeed within the coalition. We were elected in 2020 to do a job in extremely difficult times with a pandemic and a war in Europe. We need to finish out that job and seek re-election on a very clear platform that we can be trusted, not just with the economy, but with the society. And I don't think that'll be just to, just yet. Minister Neil Richmond, Minister of State of the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, welcome back to the programme. The parents of a 10-year-old girl have said they want answers about why she died after a series of operations at Temple Street Children's Hospital in Dublin. Dulciana Carter from County Meath had spina bifida and sc- spina bifida, I beg your pardon, and scoliosis. She first underwent spinal sh- surgery at the hospital in May 2021, involving the surgeon at the centre of the external review announced by the HSE this week. She had multiple further procedures after her first treatment and died on the 29th of September last year. The case is part of an external review of 19 children treated at Temple Street announced by the Health Service Executive. Kieran Damien Tanzi, solicitor with Damien Tanzi Solicitors in Sligo and Dublin, represents the Carter parents and some of the other families affected by the issue at Temple Street and joins us this morning uh, on the programme. Uh, Kieran, thanks for taking our call this morning. This this reads like a horror story. It certainly does. Um, it's it's hard to come to terms with the full extent of what has been going on in Temple Street. Uh, it appears that um, the operations were being uh, run in the hospital uh, without any form of supervision, uh, without any appropriate governance, and uh, the the outcome has, as you say, been horrific. How many reports at this point have been? initiated into what has been going on? There have been two reports um, carried out by the HSE, one of which was an internal report and the second of which amounted to an external report prepared by the uh, an external uh, doctor appointed by the HSE. It uh, has emerged this week that the um, Minister has directed a further report be carried out uh, on t- into the um, the operations of Temple Street Hospital. Um, earlier this week also, the families all received an amalgam report of the first two reports. So th- there's a lot of paperwork flying around, and uh, unfortunately, each report has a piece of additional information with it, and uh, that's what uh, I mean when I say that uh, um, this is being released to the families on a piecemeal basis. You and I will be privy to information that's not in the public uh, domain by virtue of what we do for a living. And there's so much more to come out publicly that it's, it is truly horrific. But one particular uh, element of this was the use of unauthorised implants. Is that covered in any of the reports? No, it, that, seemingly that has only emerged uh, since August. Uh, and it appears that the earlier reports predate that. Now, um, we're, we're told that there are some form of compression springs and that they were placed in, in children's backs. Um, the, th- that's all we know. Um, it seems that the HSE are appropriately energised by, by what is certainly a scandal. And they have indicated that that matter will be covered in this next report which okay. will follow. All these reports presumably will be published publicly. There's an appetite for that, is there? 
there is an appetite for that. Um, the there was pressure over the week, and uh, last night the HSC published the uh, the constitute reports which they used for their own report. Um, so the the media pressure is is um, proving uh, of some of some benefit, um, but. But but the, the point remains that it took some pressure this week for the earlier reports to be released, uh, and it's indicative of a general uh, um, uncertainty and lack of clarity and lack of transparency that this has permeated this this what is really a scandal. Now I know you're precluded from commenting on specific cases or matters which uh, may be confidential or that have arisen. But it's in the public domain where one particular individual had to undergo 33 operations as a result of an initial operation. How is it feasible that that should have happened, that nobody said there's something wrong here? Mm-hmm. It's ghastly, really. Um, you know, one operation is, is, a, is a trial at 33 is, 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 um, is hell, really. Um, it, 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 it's indicative of, of an utter lack of trans- uh, uh, governance, uh, cor- you know, corporate governance, uh, hospital governance within the hospital. Uh, I, I'm trying to come to terms with how that, the, all this could have happened. I mean, the, the doctor in question would have had colleagues and supervisors and assistants and so on, and other doc- doctors would have been involved. Um, so, so it just beggars belief that, uh, um, that there was... There, there must have been different, uh, you know, I suppose well, divisions well, within the hospital. I know. Well, I mean, each it, division was operating independently. It, it it strikes me one of two things here: that there was a fear on the part of individuals to make known what their concerns were, or there wasn't the necessary structures in place that information could be fed up to individuals who could actually take action. So it goes back to governance. Well, well that's just it. Really. You can imagine these uh, families with children who have spina bifida, um, they really have one uh, saviour for them in terms of a a major problem arising with their child. And that's the paediatric orthopaedic team in Temple Street Children's Hospital. That's their one, that's the the centre in Ireland, the only uh, relevant hospital in Ireland. If they fall out with that hospital by by having registered a complaint, where do they go thereafter? And that's been a constant recurrent theme that I've encountered with the families that I've been acting I'm acting for. Um, they didn't feel uh, empowered to raise any issues, knowing that were they to do so, you know, their own children could then be left out in the cold and not get the required, perhaps life life saving treatment that they need. And, and that coloured uh, perhaps the, the the mood between hospital and a patient family in, in these circumstances. I would presume that every family, number one, wants an apology, number two, they want to see accountability, and number three, they want to ensure that this never happens again. So are we going to get that? How long will it take us to get that? Or are we just going to do a report, move on, nothing's going to change? That is the fear, and it's a real fear for the following reason. The the reports and the solutions that are identified in the reports involve a doubling up of doctors per surgery. So where previously you had one surgeon operating, the reports that I've read have indicated that you now need two. 
that halves the number of doctors available to carry out operations for other children. And where previously you already had a huge backlog, you're now going to have a, a double, it doubly so, because there'll be half the number of available doctors for operations. Um, so so it, it's a worrying uh, solution. Obviously, it's a solution that has to be put in place because it'll avoid what we've what we're going through uh, at the moment in terms of the outcomes. Uh, but 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 where are the new doctors going to come from that will step into the breach and uh, operate on children that require these remedial operations? You know, uh, so there's a full array of solutions that have to be urgently put into place. I, I believe that they have to outsource some of these operations uh, abroad. That's the only way that, that um, the services to these children will have to be will, will, are capable of being provided. We d- we don't have the resources in Ireland for a doubling up of doctors per operation um, with the backlog that we we have. I mean, spina bifida is has a higher incidence in Ireland than in most other countries for whatever reason. Um, but I'm not sure that we have a higher level of pediatric orthopedic surgeons in, in Ireland to match that instance rate. Given what has come out in these reports, and as you say, a lot of it will be made public in time, and the magnitude of what went on, will it trigger some form of inquiry, a tribunal? Is it required, do you think? It's it's early days uh, to... um, to make that suggestion, uh, our firm has has been briefed in recent days uh, in a lot of these cases, uh, and we're just trying to figure out what has happened. Uh, there is talk in the media about compression springs, unauthorized compression springs, have, having been delivered to hospitals and so on. Uh, we just don't know the full facts yet. Um, I, I guess in in the coming weeks and months, we'll be in a better position to find out exactly what happened. But it suffice to say that that, that a major issue has arisen, arisen in the chief uh, orthopedic children's hospital in the country. It, it, it's it's almost been shut down as a, as a consequence. This is a, a quite significant issue, and um, if if a tribunal is the way out, well, so be it. Um, um, but 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 my first focus is is uh, these children and getting the treatment that they require, and the HSE needs to engage with us on that. Is there a fear that the scope could be widened to take in other hospitals, other facilities? Will there be a need now, perhaps, to go back and look at what we are doing and to ensure that the the correct processes have been in place? I think so. Uh, you know, uh, this this needs to be as wide as we can make it um, in its initial form. It was too narrow. Um, I understand overnight that the Minister has indicated that he's willing to widen the scope and that's that's to be welcomed. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're just basing our opinions on the families that contact our office. Um, it, it seems to date that this is a matter that... Um, is focused on Temple Street Children's Hospital. Um, having said that, um, we have encountered issues, sim- similar issues in other hospitals. It, it's hard to uh, decide if that's a common trend and a common theme as a result of the same issue or if it's just by accident. 
um, all will be apparent in, in, as I say, the coming weeks and months. What about the families in this? Presume there's an incredible degree of anger amongst them. Yeah, and, and it, it, of course it's an anger that's, that's continuing to grow as as the realisation dawns. And they've they've lived with this on a, on a kind of daily basis and it's it's hard, and I'm sure it was hard for them to step outside and look at this, uh, you know, objectively from a from an objective distance. They're now far more able to do so because of the media attention and the the focus on their cases, and it's it's dawning on them the full extent of of the the tragedy that has befallen them and particularly their children, and it's causing anger, resentment, and upset, uh, and, and all of those emotions that go with it. Kieran, Damien Tansy, solicitor with Damien Tansy Solicitors in Sligo and Dublin. Thank you for taking our call this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Oh eight six one eight hundred six five eight. Email Michael at lmfm.ie. A lot of comments. We'll get to those before the end of the program at eleven o'clock. Uh, Adam Higgins is political correspondent with the Irish Sun. He joins us online. Adam, morning. Thanks for joining us. The RTE soap. It's just not going away, and this time it relates to a survey which uh, asks about the the future of the TV license. We'll get to that in a moment. I want to talk to you about the events that happened yesterday outside the Doyle, a dangerous, dangerous element there. Is this just the beginning of more to come, do you think? Um, yes, you're right. Good morning, Alan. It was a, a dangerous and quite a dark day at Lenza House yesterday. The protest started very early on with uh, a small crowd gathering at the, the Kildare Street side of Lenza House, and that got bigger and bigger I think to, to about 200 people, I'd say, is is what it totaled at for, for a couple of hours. And they were kind of targeting. It didn't matter which um, party people were in, or either if they, even if they were politicians, they were targeting staff coming in, journalists coming into Lenza House. Anyone coming in was labelled a traitor, an enemy of the state. All of this sort of rhetoric that was thrown around, and then you'll have seen the videos that went around a little later in the day, where they started to kind of uh, hurl abuse and try to attack politicians as they left Lenza House. The guards were forced to step in and, and kind of flank politicians as they were leaving to the Lair Street side. And then when the protesters realised that politicians could drive their cars outside the Merrion Street side of uh, Leinster House, they went around and blocked that, which left a lot of politicians stuck in Leinster House for a number of hours while the Gardaí dealt with that at the, at the other side of the gates. Presumably these are right-wing elements. Rent a right-wing crowd, is it? Yeah, so, I mean, the one thing that was clear from the protest is how unclear they were with what they wanted. I mean, you had anti-immigration, anti-trans rights, anti-COVID vaccine, anti-hate speech legislation, but then there was also a lot of conspiracy theory stuff about uh, a secret global order that was conspiring against them. There was talk about protesting against children being asked to sign contracts not to tell their parents what they're being taught in school. And there was even talk about devil worship politicians inside Lenza House. I mean, some of it was just crazy stuff. Do you think there's a fertile ground at the moment for the emergence of a true right-wing party in the context of what these individuals espouse? I think there will be an attempt to run far-right and right-wing um politicians or or want to be politicians in the upcoming local elections and I think you'll see them 
how much of a hunger there is for that or how big that side of Ireland is. And personally, I don't think there's really much. I mean, a lot of people that you were saw at this protest yesterday are the exact same people that we're seeing at the protests outside libraries against certain books or the protests outside immigration centres. And, and it's important to say that while this protest yesterday gets a lot of coverage because it happened outside Leinster House and they were targeting politicians, this is the exact same sort of threats and anger and everything else that we see from this group outside of immigration centres. So people who are coming into Ireland, fleeing from other places, this is the sort of stuff they're facing every day when they come here. Merely puppets of somebody else from a different jurisdiction, perhaps, because that notion has been floated in the past? Yeah, maybe. And I think they they do organise on kind of these online platforms. And I think a lot of what you see is this kind of just rhetoric that's lifted from other places. A lot of that, what we saw in the US in recent years of the the far-right movement in the US, you see that kind of speech mirrored here yesterday. I mean, yesterday, a lot of your readers might have seen online uh, Michael Healy Ray being um, escorted out by Gardy. And it didn't matter what PD or what political party he was from, he was an enemy of the state, he was a traitor. And that exact same sort of stuff was targeted at the catering staff on their way into Leinster House yesterday, that they were enemies, they were enemies. But not having any kind of policy they wanted changed or anything that Michael Healy Ray had specifically done to argue them, it didn't matter. He was a politician and therefore he was the enemy. Okay, let's get to RTE and the continuing soap opera. Where is this going to end? The various committees are still going to have to hear from the likes of D Forbes, Jim Jennings. Just on D, D Forbes, is it your view that you will ever actually sit before a committee and answer questions? Well, the Minister for Arts, Catherine Martin, was asked that very question yesterday and she said that as far as she is aware, the Forbes is unwell and while she's unwell, she obviously can't come before a committee or anything like that, but she did say that she would want the Forbes to come before these committees and answer questions. And I think personally, until some of the people that have left Orty in the wake of these scandals come before the committees or come out and have, give their side of the story, I don't think we'll ever have the full answers to what happened in RTE. You and I have listened to Kevin Back, Backhurst talking about, you know, transparency, openness, being frank, understanding the problems. They're going through a pretty miserable process at the moment. How are they going to come out of it? And what will RTE look like, do you think, when they come out of it? Will, be, will it be a slimmed-down organisation, as Mr Backhurst has suggested? I think it will have to be a slim-lined organisation. I think they'll have to cut back if they're going to get interim funding from the state. And I know the interim funding is coming up in the next couple of weeks. We know that that new era report to decide how much money the state should give or to, to keep them afloat. That's due any day now to the minister. So I'd say in the next week or so, we're going to start hearing about how much that's going to be. And that will be important because RTE wants 35 million. I think it's a fair chance that they'll get that 35 million. I think it'll be a smaller number than that. And in order to get that money, they have to prove that they're willing to reform, that they're willing to change. And I think that's going to be slimmed down now. I know there's a lot of talk about selling the RTE campus or selling some of the RTE campus in Dublin. And that may be something that's considered as a cost-saving measure, but I think ultimately it will have to be a smaller RTE going forward. Now, there's no question there's a deficit of confidence amongst the public in RTE since this scandal broke. I mean, you write about it yourself in The Sun today, about the TV licence fee, public broadcasting being wrapped, one in five, we just don't need it anymore. So how do we get that confidence back? How do we win the public back, do you think? I think 
if you look at RTE and what they do really well, it's the stuff that the independent productions that they commission and also then their news side. Because the news side of RTE, I have to say, is phenomenal. There's some great journalists there and they do brilliant stuff. And along with the sports side of things as well, I think what would help bring the public in along with them here would be if they started cutting down on some of the content that I think the, the public would be a little angry about, say, like, you know, the likes of, you know, British soaps being brought in or reruns of American sitcoms and things like this. Money that's being spent on those for for RTE when it's not, you know, Irish content. I think that could help. But I think ultimately the anger from the public against RTE is at the top executives. Is that this massive pay that people are getting at the top level? And I think that has to come down. So I think all of those top salaries have to come down. And Kevin Backhurst has already mentioned that he's looking at a cap on salaries. He's looking to benchmark salaries of top executives in RTE. And I think that would be a big piece of work for him in winning the public back. Well, certainly from the public perspective, it would be seen as a tangible measure of change within the organisation. However, it will be a difficult prospect for Mr Backhurst to try and do something with those salaries because the salaries, I'm not going to get into whether they're right or wrong, but they will be fighting tooth and nail to keep those salaries won't they? They will of course yeah and we've already seen that uh, last year they took a uh, pay rise, well not really a pay rise but a pay restoration from when they were had taken cuts before and, and that wasn't expressed to the Minister so I think transparency you mentioned there is really the key thing here that if there's going to be any pay rises, if the, these salaries are going to be there that the minute, not only the minister, but the public needs to be told this. The, the public can't have any of this situation where there's secret barter accounts being used to, you know, either top up salaries or pay for parties and flip flops and all this sort of stuff. All of that sort of kind of shadowy financial work has to be gone. That has to be a thing of the past if RTE are going to come out of this. Okay, just before I let you go, I just want to ask you in relation to Ryan Tuberty, and it's great to be looking back with the benefit of hindsight in relation to matters which have unfolded and their, the consequences of their, of their outcomes. But do you think that Ryan Tuberty would ever have been given absolution, not just by RTE, but by the public, if he had handled things differently? Or was it a fait accompli that he was always going to go? Because there was a certain hostility towards him within the organisation amongst a sizable cohort of the staff. And ultimately, it's said that that was the fundamental reason why he was told no more. I don't think it's a fait accompli that he was he was going to go, no, because it was very close. I mean, the deal was done to bring him back to his Radio 1 slot, and then he put out that statement, and that's what kind of changed things, and, and he was then told that his contract wasn't going to be renewed. So I, I don't think it was a fait accompli, but I think if he had to come back, I wonder how long or what the public reaction would have been from his listeners, because there is he had a lot of fans, and it's something that we see in The Sun when we write about Ryan Tubby, is a lot of people getting in touch about story, like his story, stories about him are incredibly popular, especially online, and I think he does have a lot of fans here, and he has a lot of people who want to see him return, and you're right to say that there was a lot of people within RTE who weren't happy that he was coming back, they were really annoyed at the situation around his the pay and everything else that happened there with the Renault deal. So I think it would have been an interesting thing to see the public's reaction to that, and not only the public's reaction, but the reaction from staff within RTE. 
We leave it there. Adam Higgins, political correspondent with the Irish Sun. Thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now then, welcome back to the programme. Just before we leave you at 11 o'clock this morning, we want to uh, just bring you up to date with some of the comments which we have been getting. Some of them relate, in fact, to yesterday, but primarily dealing with what happened outside the Doyle um, yesterday, and it's dominated pretty much the conversation on the programme this morning. And first comment, isn't it great to hear how easily TDs and senators are able to up the security and guard the presence around the Doyle with immediate effect, while the rest of us in town, such as Navin, have to deal with constant antisocial behaviour whilst being told there are no extra resources available. One rule for one and a different one for the rest of us mere mortals, says Stephen. That's off the back of the conversation we had with um, Padot Tobin around antisocial behaviour, not just in Navan, but in various areas around uh, the county and further afield. Mary says those arrested at the Doyle yesterday should be named and shamed. This kind of behaviour cannot be tolerated under any circumstances. It was sickening to watch. It seems like that mob didn't care a jot about party politics or policies. It seems like every politician and anyone liked, uh, linked to them was viewed as an enemy and subjected to dog's abuse even the administrative staff. Everybody has a right to peaceful protests. Nobody's denying that. However, when it descends into what we had witnessed yesterday, it becomes worrying. And one would ask, you know, feeds into the same narrative that we live in a lawless society, that there's a certain underbelly and element out there that are threatening the very security of individuals. And I wager to say undermining the state as well. Fuel prices. Marion Trim says, Alan, I'm a fuming pensioner. I was listening to your programme yesterday about fuel prices and listening to the poor fuel merchant crying poverty. How can he justify a bag of coal going from 15 euro in price to 35? And that was last year. God knows what it will be this time next year. He wants us to shop local, but it's no wonder people are trying elsewhere in a bid to get better value for money. We really are at the mercy of what the merchants want to charge. And that is so unfair. I guarantee that there will be a lot of cold elderly people this year. I myself struggle to afford a bag of coal. Maybe I'll be able to treat myself to one by Christmas. I think what the fuel merchants, their position yesterday was their business is being undermined. It's being squeezed and they face the real threat and potential of going out of business. And that is as a result of importers into this country illegally bringing coal in and selling it in a manner which is illegal. It's illegal to bring it into the country. It's not illegal to sell it. But we're feeding into that by buying that coal. And I absolutely understand why people want to try and get value for money. But we have to ask the question, why is the price going up? And from what I understand, it's not the coal merchants, and I'm not a mouthpiece for them, but it's not the coal merchants who had put it up to that particular price. It was a levy as a result of the Green Party's insistence of trying to combat global change, climate change, whatever it may be. And that was just one of the elements that uh, resulted in that. Re-education. Betty says, instead of teaching our children what people eat in space, etc., maybe we should be concentrating on teaching them good old-fashioned manners and how to treat those less fortunate than themselves with dignity and respect. These kind of life lessons our children need to be learning. Back to the Doyle protests again. 
Niall says the scenes outside the Doyle yesterday were disgraceful to see. Nobody should be treated in a manner when they are going about their work. People in this country seem to be losing the run of themselves altogether and seem to think that they can do whatever they like. We cannot allow this way of thinking to become the norm. Again, staying with the Doyle protests, Anne says those involved in the fracas outside the Doyle yesterday deserve to have the book thrown at them. Their behaviour was disgusting and bullying at worst. And I wager that this is a story which will run and run and it will ultimately end in greater security outside the Doyle as it's and I think this this point was uh, made by uh, Minister Neil Richmond when he said in terms of security and he's absolutely right on this if you go to any jurisdiction within Europe the security outside parliament buildings outside offices outside departments is absolutely steel-like you will not get through under any circumstances. And one of the good things about the democracy we live in this country, there are very other few countries that you can walk up to a minister coming out of his office or his department in a respectful way and put a microphone under his nose and ask him a question. And more often than not, they will respond to that question. You may not get the, the answer to the question you want, but they are there, they are open. And I think it would be a sad day if we in this country shut that possibility down and found it next to, next to impossible to get to our ministers unless it was in a structured manner around press conferences or what we call doorstep opportunities. But I fear that that day is coming very soon when we will see security beefed up around departments. We already see it around some departments, around, in fact, constituency offices as well, which have come under attack by protesters. And I think of Simon Harris being one of them. And there were many more instances of where uh, ministers' constituency offices came under attack. And I fear that security will be beefed up again significantly outside the door as a result of what happened yesterday amongst those right-wing protesters. Let's get back to pricing in relation to the retail forum. Pat and Avon says, The minister is on a different planet when he's talking about pricing. Grocery prices most certainly have gone up and are still increasing on a weekly basis. Meat, for example, for the minister to suggest otherwise is complete waffle on his part. I think he was making the point as well that there is reductions to be seen, but he did say that that was on own brand items. So if you go into a supermarket, you have your own brand stuff there. And I have seen it myself. I'm not one who goes to the supermarket every weekend. Uh, My wife does that purely because she's a better shopper than I. I, She sticks rigidly to lists. I just throw everything into a basket. But it's certainly one thing that I have noticed that own brand is significantly different in price compared to the other branded items. And I think if you shop around, if you've got the time to do it, Fair play to you because I don't. But if you have the time to shop around to do it, you will find value for money. But yes, I absolutely agree. I have seen myself an increase in specific items. And you're right. Some cases, meat, for example, that is going up in price. So one has to be a little bit more selective in terms of where they shop and uh, why they are buying the brands that they're buying. And the point I think the retailers are making as well is a lot of the brands that they have bought, they have done that months ago. So they have to take into consideration the price they bought at in order to be able to not just uh, make a profit, but to pay for what they paid. So they have to take that into consideration as well. Reads the Doyle Trouble. The text reads, rent a right wing lovey. 
maybe it's a lot of people not happy or who are very angry with the government. Not too sure on that. Mary agrees that security at the Dáil needs to be upped. Given what happened yesterday, we cannot allow mob rule to take over this country. There has to be boundaries. They're just some of your comments which came in in relation to the items on the programme this morning. We're rapidly coming to an end of another day's broadcasting. We'll be back with you same time tomorrow, shortly after nine o'clock on The Michael Reid Show. But for me, Alan Cantwell, for the moment, good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.